and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. In each podcast, we'll be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. Who is it we're looking at, Pete? And why is she still so relevant? So today, Gav, we're going to be looking at Millicent Fawcett. And some of our listeners went, Millicent Fawcett? Is she an economist? In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Certainly, in terms of her relevance in her time, she was responsible very much for popularising the field of economics. Her book, Political Economy for Beginners, which was written in 1870, when she was still really young, actually, she was only 23 when she wrote that, was wildly successful. Yeah. Went through 10 editions and was still going strong when she died in 1928. I've got the sixth edition. Have you? Yes, which I read for this. Oh, well done. I say read it. Yeah. I read some of it. Oh, okay. Well, don't do yourself down. (laughs) Uh, And I will get onto that because... um, Well, actually, I'll say it now. In the world of education... Yeah. um, There's always stuff about nothing's really new in education. Mm. So there's all the stuff about, like, you see arguments online about, oh, retrieval learning, and there's no such thing. And, like, we've, all been, we've always been doing retrieval learning. Oh, no, it's a relatively new thing, retrieval learning, retrieval learning. So I'm sh- hopefully people out there will understand what I'm talking about. Retrieval learning is just literally studying something and then testing yourself on it yeah. to retrieve the learning. And if you yeah. do that enough times, eventually it will stick. Yeah. Memory is the residue of thought. Classic right. educational stuff. Okay. Right. So what's the relevance of this little digression? Because in her book, what's interesting is at the end of each mini chapter, mm-hmm. she writes retrieval learning questions. Oh, right. She writes like six or seven questions. And then, yeah. not only that, she then does these kind of stretch and challenge questions. Oh. Now, this only came, I think, after the second or third edition. Someone right. recommended that maybe add yeah. your, these things onto yeah. it. But it just struck me that we're having all these arguments and there was this book written in whenever it was, you know, and like she was basically doing retrieval learning back then. Oh, there we are then. Now, obviously, Millicent Fawcett is most famous for her role, a leading role in the women's suffrage movement. Yes. So in part, the reason we're going to look at her is to look at uh, the role of feminist economics. Is that right? Yeah, we're going to dive into a little bit of that because I yeah. think that's the thing. We had a little bit of discussion, didn't we, Pete, about um, whether um, there was, uh, if, we, if she any, kind of created anything new. And this yeah. is what we normally talk about, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. They're relevant for society now. And I, we, I think we should come back to the suffragette movement a little bit related to feminist economics. Mm-hmm. But for me, and I don't know if it's about you as well, Pete, is that sometimes when we start off, looking at an economist yeah um you don't know what paths you're going to go down yeah and what i found is that uh, when i was reading about Millicent Fawcett it just took me on this path about how many uh voices kind of went missing Mm. around that time Mm. of you know say for example Harriet Taylor Mill Mm -hmm. okay who was John Stuart Mill's partner, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, Rathbone was, I think, another one. I've got them all down here. Mini Throop England, yeah. okay, Beatrice Webb was more well known. Some we've spoken about, Mary uh, Paley, uh, previously yeah. before, the wife yeah. of Raphael Marchal. So there's all these people 
um, kind of hidden voices that were doing work that was kind of challenging, I suppose, um, you know, homo economicus, as it were, or just orthodox economics. Mm -hmm. And um, in many respects, I think she's a part of that. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And in some respects, she devoted her life to, or the vast bulk of her life, to getting the vote for women. Um, if she hadn't done that, she'd have said an interest in political economy. It'd be quite interesting to know where that, you know, that great mind and that uh, great drive might have taken her within the field of economics, yeah. I suppose, which we will never know. You did say suffragette earlier. And technically, I think she would be characterised as a suffragist. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so Thank let, you. You've let yourself down there. Yeah, and you yeah. know what? That now mucks up my poem a little bit. It's okay. Because suffragette rhymes with four set. <laughs> well. It's oh a little well. taster for what's to come. Okay. <laughs> Usually an accuracy which we've, we've become known for. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we're going to go into a bit of a biography um, about her. And her biography is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And in many ways, um, it's based on her memoir. I think it was What I Remember, is that, yeah. is that what it's yes. called? Um, which we both really enjoyed and which yeah. I found free online. Yeah. No way, I paid uh, so, I'm sure we can send a link out to, to readers because I'd read, sorry, listeners rather. I'd really strongly recommend reading that. It's, it reads as really fresh, you know, it's just yeah, it's really brilliant. sort of, um, well, well written, very clear, very lucid, yeah. but also quite funny. And uh, she knew everyone. Yeah, that's what got me about <laughs> it as well. But that's a, well, one of our later questions is, is mm. about what kind of question would we like to ask her? Mm. But I reckon she she must have come across Keynes and Pigou mm. at some point. And obviously they're not mentioned. I, don't, I know she probably couldn't mention everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know, there's something... Yeah, she must have done. I don't know. Well, you think both sort of Cambridge people, or even like Keynes's father, uh, yeah. Neville Keynes. But also is. Bloomsbury. She was part of the... Blue, yeah. like, she was in that area. If you yeah. go and look where Keynes kind of yeah. has his blue plaque... She's mm. her blue plaque is literally just down the road. But she she knew everyone. She really did. You know, from the Pope to Garibaldi, yeah. Queen Victoria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone of her time. Really oh yes, and then we met Santo. Yeah. You know. But anyway, and we, traveled traveled so widely. She did. Thinking, they must have taken weeks to get to places. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but really. a fast, a fast, a really, really fascinating woman. Yeah. Uh, as hopefully we'll convey um, in this podcast, and then we're going to talk a little bit. Um, about sort of feminist economics more generally. So she's born in 1847, which is about 10 years into Queen Victoria's reign. And she did, she sort of did know the Queen uh, sort of socially to a degree. Uh, And certainly uh, I think Prince, uh, sorry, Prince Edward who would go on to become Edward Edward VII, I think. And she knew him as well a little bit. And she would go on to write a biography of of Queen Victoria as well. It's one of her many published works, or well, not many, but a number of published works. And she's born in Aldborough in Suffolk, the yeah. eighth of ten children. And I love this quote because obviously I'm from a very big family. Very big family yeah. And she said, it was my good fortune to be born a member of a large family and, moreover, in the younger half of it. And there we are, that's me. Yeah. Yeah. So we are, <laughs> we are equally blessed, Millicent. Yeah. So... She reflects in her memoir on sort of her time, because we always like to do that when we talk, oh, yeah, what was Ricardo's time? What was Marshall's time like, mm-hmm. if you like? And what, what we're trying to do there, I guess, is put their ideas in the context, because often 
I think some sort of ideas are taken out of their context and they lose really um, and they're sort of shoehorned in to sort of try and explain some modern phenomena. So historically, we, we've always done that. She reflects herself quite a bit in her memoir, well, maybe as you'd imagine, on um, you know the time she lived through. Um, so she said, you know, she says, uh, you know, the year of my birth was the year of the Irish famine yeah. and the repeal of the Corn Laws. And the following year saw the downfall of half the old autocratic governments in uh, Europe. So very aware mm. of the sort of momentous times that she was living through. Um, and obviously, it, you know, her own sort of actions in the suffrage movement would lead to sort of momentous change as well. Uh, I suppose during that period as well, you see the acceleration of the British Empire, the rise of the railway, British Empire at its zenith. So actually, technically, in what year was it at its biggest? Don't know. Good question. Yeah. Do you know? No. Are you going to say? Yeah, I think it was just after <laughs> World War World War One. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you know some of the sort of boundary changes after that. Right. Even perhaps the British Empire was perhaps beyond the peak of its economic power in terms right. of just geographically. I think right. at that point it was at its greatest point. But she's certainly living through that time where you know the empire is sort of expanding you know um and so on she described as well her her first visit uh, to london in 1858 and the nearest railway being in ipswich 26 miles away yeah yeah it's fascinating isn't it and her, her, she, her dad would take the old carriage out yeah yeah it's very affronted as well and not being taken to the great exhibition yeah. in 1851 uh but she said she was consoled by the sight of some lovely bonnets of drawn blue velvet yeah. Brought back from London. So, mm. yeah. yeah. She had incredible, I don't know if you're going to say this, but she, again, reading that book, she had some really incredible, um, um, strong women early on in her life, didn't she? Like, obviously, her mother. Yeah. But obviously, the the kind of house, not house, yeah, it was a housemistress. Yeah, it was a sort of housemistress. And then yeah. the, the, the head teacher of uh, her, her school. Her yeah, school. We'll, we'll go on and talk yeah. about that a, a little bit. Can I just say, just quickly? Yeah, of course. There's a bit, the bit that I actually took from the book because it made me laugh, thinking about um, COVID. I mm-hmm. shouldn't laugh too much about COVID. But you know, like lockdown skeptics. Yeah. Right. <laughs> There's a bit in the book where she goes, in 1858, the journey to London, the first I'd ever taken, was one prolonged delight. First, the drive of 26 miles in my father's carriage, himself, I think, driving, and then the railway train on all its wonders. I remember an old gentleman who travelled in our carriage and took a great deal of notice of us children, but whom he was suspected of not being quite right in his mind, as he vehemently vehemently protested against the guard locking the carriage door, shouting out that he was a free-born Englishman and would not submit to being locked up. (laughs) I thought that was... It's like you could have written that. Yeah, he did He'd have been an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, he? exactly. He could have been that a year ago. Yeah, yeah. I'm a free-born Englishman. Yeah. I don't want to be locked up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, that just made me laugh at that. Time. Yeah, no, no, no. But um, certainly, I suppose the point I was trying to get across is a huge amount of um, sort of political, economic and social change. And not just in terms of the women's liberation that she's fighting for, but, you know, all, all manner of sort of areas of public life. And she's very aware of that. Um you, you mentioned she goes to school at some sort of private school in uh, in Blackheath. And she recalls sort of walking to school and, you know, how she said a huge crowd of evil looking people would assemble outside Newgate Prison to enjoy the recreation of seeing a man hanged 
Um, and she said, no, the boys we knew at St. Paul's School, which at the time was quite close to Newgate, uh, would all hang around to watch the executions. You yeah. know? And she just said, wow, you know, you know, that was still going during her lifetime. And she certainly, if you read her memoir, just re- reads as a really sort of modern yeah. uh, sort of person. Um, but, and she says herself, these things measure in some degree the distance between 1860 and 1923, sort of towards the end of her life. Yeah, yeah. You know, other things during her lifetime as well. You've got the American Civil War and you know, she, her and her family follow the course of the war, you know, with interest. She remembered... Ashes, it's the time when she first meets her husband, who's still only 17, and she's sort of um, talking at this dinner party, I think, about the loss of Lincoln and how she felt it would have a greater impact than the loss of any other single person. And everyone's like, oh, right, really? And she went, yes. You know, even compared with, like, the loss of some sort of head of, uh, you know, European head of state or another. Another thing going on during this period as well was famine, uh, you know, the great, the great Famine in Ireland. And they, her and her husband actually visit Ireland probably a couple of decades after the Great Famine. And she's really struck as well by the, the contrast between um, sort of Ireland and the poverty of Ireland and then the contrast with, um, you, you know, England and so on. She also lived through the Great War, you know, and mm. loads of her sort of um, relatives. And again, this is probably something true of her class. You know, she's remembers very much a sort of upper middle class background you, you might say her nephew and godson uh, dies at Gallipoli um, but she said you know she said there was about 10 uh, sons sons-in-law nephews and cousins who were lost to our family through the war so incredible sort of changes during, uh, uh, during her lifetime so does that sort of give you a picture of the sort of uh, her lifetime even sort of taking out the sort of suffrage movement which obviously she yeah. is foremost in, in in leading one could argue yeah so i'll talk a little bit more about her family yeah um so she's born into it as i sort of mentioned already a reasonably wealthy family her father newson garrett um, yeah it's a great name uh, was a maltster not a maltsterist um it's got to be something to do with obviously malt yeah, I think it sort of creates Meshing a sort of... Up stuff, I yeah, I think we... Yeah, just like we just got, yeah, just behind the house there, we've still got a, a Maltings in Stan yeah. Stabbots. Yeah, still going. Yeah, yeah, because you can go and visit... Uh, what, what are, what's the Malting, Maltings in... Oh, Saxmundham? No, it's not there. It's the, there's the barns you can go and... Oh, yeah. I, I can't they still do Malting, though. You smell, smell it yeah. some mornings out there. It smells sort of a little bit like wheat. But I think where he's done it, you can literally... There's like a kind of a row of shop like kind of area of shops because we went there once on holiday to the Maltings um, near Alborough. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned Alborough. He, he comes. He goes on to become mayor of Alborough mm. as he, his, uh, one of his daughters uh, becomes mayor of Alborough, the first female in the UK. Right, okay. And certainly there's lots of first females in the family. Yes. So I think um, one, one of her sisters becomes the first um, uh, qualified doctor, yeah. uh, female qualified doctor in the UK. Yeah. And so, her yeah. daughter famously becomes the the first one who becomes the what is it top of the tripos or whatever it is in Cambridge. Yeah, I'll go on there, Philip yeah. Fawcett, yeah, I'll yeah. go on and mention her a little bit later. And there's a, there's a great story about that which we touched upon in our um I think in one of our previous podcasts, perhaps the Marshall podcast. Yeah, probably, I think it was the Marshall bigger. podcast. It could be, yeah. Yeah. Uh 
So the, the Maltings was closed in the 1960s, uh, but it's now a concert hall. Yeah, the Snake Maltings is now a concert hall. That's it, hall. the Snake Maltings. Yeah, but all I'm saying is there's, a, oh, right, there's yeah. a, like, um, a food area there, there's yeah. antiques, there's really nice yeah. shops there. That's the in fact, my son laughed for the first time there. Oh, wow. That is... Nice. <laughs> oh, and he's done many of those ever <laughs> since. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a principal venue now for the annual Oldborough Festival of Music and the yeah, Arts. Yeah, go. I think Benjamin Britten um, was one of the right. sort of people sort of who uh, yeah. led to the formation. Oldborough, finest festival. fish and chip shop in the UK. Is it? That's what they always claim, isn't it? There's yeah. a fish and chip shop there, which is kind of amazing. I think the one in our village is really good, actually. I'm going to put a shout out to Seaways <laughs> in Stansted Abbots. Yeah. Free chips for the economics intensive. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah I, I mentioned a sister one of her sisters goes on to become uh, first female doctor in the UK and actually just thinking about um, sort of my family so that that must have been in the late 19th century and my grandmother she was one of the first you know she was one of the only sort of doctors in her year in the early 20th century direct beneficiary yeah, of yeah, the, yeah. sort of the family's work yeah. in sort of uh, women's liberation in, in the broader sense and um, so just to talk about her education a little bit, which you've mentioned. So age 12 in um, 1858, she goes to uh, London to Miss Browning School. Yeah. And uh, Miss Browning, apparently the aunt of the poet Robert Browning. Yes. Yeah. No. So it's a private boarding school in Blackheath. Yeah. And she she appreciated that education. That was interesting. It was interrupted because the family sort of fell on hard times at one point. It seemed to be only temporary because yeah. they go on to become sort of still wealthier i think um one of the sisters takes her to the sermons of frederick Denison morrison a socially aware and uh, less traditional anglican priest yes uh, so quite a sort of radical preacher as it were yeah you know when you went to sort of church as a kid was it radical at all did you not like the story where the um when the dad is reading um a, kind of a passage from the bible and then he, when he's bored with it, he just flicks on two pages. <laughs> he flicks on two pages then finds himself in the middle of another sermon and then just goes something like, praise be to the Lord, amen. <laughs> he just closes it down. It's really funny. because mm-hmm. he, he... <laughs> Do you know what I reminded me of, actually? Because when I was growing up, obviously I grew up in a very religious family and my dad used to insist on sort of family prayers yeah. after, after every meal, which, you know, I'm sure not everyone in the family dreaded, but... A significant chunk of us was not keen on, <laughs> but my late brother Mike, he had the knack because we always want to get through it as quickly as possible. He could say a Hail Mary in about two seconds, <laughs> and my dad would look <laughs> like, did he actually? <laughs> but he couldn't sort of make him repeat it. It was yeah. sort of a, it was a bit of a sort of game of chicken. But he, he said, yeah, he said his Hail Mary very very quickly. But the, but the, it reminded yeah. me of that really that kind of you know you know you can take a horse to water but you can't make. But that's it the thing. Anything. The dad is kind of doing it for the mum. Yeah, the, the mum. The mum is genuinely religious, really and funny. they're that's very close. They're it. very close, and he's not going to upset yeah. her. But you can see he's not. <laughs> It's really, that's why it's a really good book. Yeah, it's no, quite it's, funny. It's like yeah, warmly no, it's, written, isn't it? It is. It's very warmly yeah. written. Um, uh, so she also sort of attends a, a lecture by John Stuart Mill. Um, yeah. And again, someone we might cover in a future episode. Um, and it's that following year um, that uh, her and a friend start to support something called the Kensington Society. 
um, which is collecting signatures for a petition to ask Parliament to sort of enfranchise uh, women householders. So actually, the, the work sort of towards the first, you know, the, bringing about women's suffrage is, uh, you know, starts pretty early. Um, so she was very grateful for education, though. Um, um, she, she felt that she, you know, she'd had a very competent teacher. And she certainly, you know, is a highly intelligent and educated woman. What always sort of, sort of I think about these things is obviously up to the age of 12, you know, which we would probably consider as key years. Yeah. You know, it's not really formal schooling. She must have had some kind of, you know, governess and, and so on. You kind yeah. of sort of wondered how that worked on yeah. a day-to-day basis. Uh, and there we are. Um, so, yeah, what's interesting, though, she, you know, her schooling is sort of interrupted temporarily. She's not bitter about it. And one of the things that struck me about her biography generally, you know, not some quite difficult things happened to her and her family at times. Obviously, yeah. generally, they're from quite an affluent background. Well, but she's not deaths from lifeboats. Yeah. You know, and seeing that, and then she'd gone out in the lifeboats as well. Yeah, and all kind of yeah. Stuff like but she's not bitter about anything. She's definitely sort of one of sort of life's optimists, I would say. Yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, her marriage... She, her marriage is really interesting as well. Uh, you know, her husband is a very interesting figure who we could mm. doubtless talk about at length. Um, so the quote she made once about, oh, you know, Lincoln, you know, the loss of Lincoln being pre- really important. That, I think that's the first time they met. Um, and she says, um, the expression struck the ears of the blind man who some two years later became my husband. Because mm. her husband was blind. Yeah. You know? He went on to have a a reasonably successful political career. Mm. Um, this uh, chap, Henry Fawcett. Was it a shooting Ve- instance? Yeah, it's a shooting instance. I didn't, I didn't sort of read any yeah. sort of detail about well, no, that. But she doesn't, um, I don't think they go into much detail. No, no, they don't. Um, it seems to be quite a sort of, um, a sort of swift marriage. Apparently, but he, he, he proposed to the sister first. She doesn't mention this, yeah. but I read somewhere <laughs> else yeah. that, uh, yeah. you know, he proposed to a sister and sister's like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. Okay, uh, well. <laughs> and again, there's no sort of bitterness. Well, there's no reference to that. It's probably not something you'd bring up. But um, And she was, what, about 20 years younger? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, 15, 20 years younger, I think. Yeah, so it's significantly younger, I'd say. Whether that, I suspect that may have been reasonably common at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, he he, uh, he accepts an invitation from my father to come down and spend a few days at Old House. That settled my future life. We became engaged in October 1866 and were married on St. George's Day, which has just passed, hasn't it? Yeah. Also the day of Shakespeare's. And I didn't know this, Wordsworth's birth mm-hmm. as well, apparently. And my dad's. Uh, right, so she said that's she describes that as the favourite day of her year. Oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, nice, yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he's a really interesting character. He's sort of blinded in the in a shooting accident. He goes on to become a professor at Trinity College in Cambridge, an MP, uh, and also postmaster general, which doesn't sound like the most important role, but probably at the time was quite an important yeah. role. And I think he brought in quite a few innovations into the postal service, which at the time, you know, pre-internet, pre-most forms of modern communication, it would have been quite a significant sort of uh, role within politics. Yeah. Really beautiful painting of them both by Ford Maddox Brown. Oh, Ford yeah. Maddox Brown, he did it. Yeah. Right. Lovely painting. You, you yeah. should you look like oh, no, could, I've seen that. It could inspire you to greater <laughs> heights. I'll replicate it, stick on Instagram. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> uh, they kept houses in both London and Cambridge, and they weren't loaded by the standards of their time. 
And she describes herself as very frugal in managing the household right. finances. I won't go into detail at this, but she's very funny and very observant about the sort of social life of Cambridge University in the 1860s yeah. and 70s. All the little snobberies and peculiarities. Again, that's a, a bit of the memoir, which we won't go into detail about, but it's there, quite funny. There is actually a brilliant clip that you can find online, which I was quite surprised. And I think I think it's related to the LSE, I think that, where you can actually hear a woman who knew her mm. speaking about her having this really dry wit yeah and um and doing these kind of witty off the cuff remarks and it is really fascinating again knowing that you hearing that recording of someone actually who genuinely spent some time with her and it's yeah. amazing yeah oh, it reminds me of when um i'm watching a documentary about the american civil war which is and they start this really elderly woman sort of in the 1960s they have a film of her and she Oh, maybe it was the 1950s. Colour film, though, but she just about remembered the Civil War. I don't yeah. think, blimey, you know. Mm-hmm. And you kind of think in TV, you know, it's sort of... But there will have been people, certainly in the 20th century, because she died in any 20th century, who'd still know her. Yeah, yeah. could sort of remember yeah. her. Yeah. So he, he's very encouraging of her career, which, again, must have been very unusual at the time. So he's very yeah. much a sort of... Uh, uh, socially liberal. Well, I think uh, he encouraged her to write the book. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and um, so he he firstly encouraged her to write an article for Macmillan's magazine when she yeah. was twenty one, and she gets seven quid for that. Yeah, we don't get anything for this podcast, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we do it for love, but she did. She donated it to John Stuart Mill's election campaign. Apparently, yeah. Oh, well, so our first royalties. I don't think we did that with our first royalties. I think we went to the pub. <laughs> Have we had royalties? Yeah, Philip Allen Publishing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ju- yes. Just to name one. Back in the day. Back yeah. in the day. <laughs> there we are. By the way, Macmillan, uh, again, you know, so he just knew this person socially. He's the brother uh, and the founder of the publisher and ancestor of the PM, you know, right. Macmillan. Yeah, yeah, That's, yeah. It's that family. And he's, he's a close family friend and strongly encourages Millicent to write her introduction to political economy, this sort of yeah. bestseller which popularises the field. And those of you who A-level economics, maybe the, the Maunder or the Lipsy. <laughs> or what's the big one in America? Uh, Mancu. Mancu, yeah. Mm. So she's writing that textbook <laughs> that you always see like when you get to yeah. UDO, the 10th edition of yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, and, it, and like I say, it's a very readable book. Yeah. So they travel a lot. She she is transfixed by Rome. Yeah. Yes. And I think Italy was her favourite place in yeah. the world. She said yeah. something: if I could yeah. die, or if I died, or something, it would be Italy. I missed the most, or something. Yeah. Like yeah. I can't remember the exact quote either, but I do remember that. Her husband apparently dislikes Switzerland because obviously being blind. I'm like, oh, isn't it beautiful around there? And he's like, uh, you know. <laughs> So he couldn't really quite, he didn't have the same, same no. attraction to to him. Yeah. Uh, and so when her husband joins the government, she meets Queen Victoria, as you do. Yeah. She also socialises with the Prince of the Wales uh, and his family. Um, they both write, both the Queen and the Prince, to her when her husband dies. Yeah. They both wrote letters of condolence. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, she must have had more of a passing sort of um, acquaintance with them. But they seem to be, she said, you know, you very much get an, uh, an impression of an intellectual marriage, but a really loving marriage uh, where they share everything apart from, apparently, his love of fishing, mm. which he couldn't abide. Fair enough. 
you ever been fishing? Yeah, I used to go all the time with my dad. Did you? Did you enjoy it? No. No. I feel, I feel really annoyed about it now because obviously when you would watch a programme like Water and it was called White House, yeah. I think I'd love to have genuinely listened to my dad yeah. when he was telling me how to fish and I used to just pull out the maggots and see who'd win in a race. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. And like, I used to enjoy chucking them in. I used to like, sit in there. Yeah. If I could sit there just with a rod and read a book, yeah. I'll probably miss, you know, it's that tranquility I miss. Yeah. It's probably something you would enjoy more as you get older, though. Yeah, I think when you're so. young, you just want to do other things, yeah. like sort of fruitlessly sort of chase girls and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but there we are. <laughs> right. So they do have a daughter, Philippa, and we did mention her. I think it was in our Marshall episode. And the story we described there um, was how she. This is a sort of the beginnings of female education in Cambridge, which again is part of Fawcett's legacy, not just her, you know, the people like Sidgwick and one or two other people yes. who are responsible for the formation of what would become Newnham College. Yes. Uh, and her daughter, Philippa, uh, attends there and sits the sort of mathematical tripos papers, which is the sort of uh, the terminal papers at Cambridge. And she actually gets the highest score. Mm. And I think the title you get is that you become, is it Chief Wrangler or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Her dad had apparently been Seventh Wrangler. Mm. Yeah, so quite high up. But daughter, Numeruno, but she wasn't allowed to take the title. No. So it could only be awarded to a, yeah. a bloke. Yeah. And I think when we covered this, the, the next person to actually score that highly, it wouldn't be again until the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a good, an interesting description of... Um, you know, the, the reaction, the public reaction to her daughter's performance. And, well, you know, lots of people, male and female, who were sort of, oh, this is amazing, yeah, and, yeah. and so on. Yeah, but she couldn't have that official recognition. Some quite a funny description of her, her daughter, which just seems so familiar to anyone who's, who's got little kids. It's like she was always asking why. Someone at Cambridge said to her, do you always say why, Philippa? She replied, no, sometimes I say, why, oh, why? <laughs> Her why often took me out of my debt. For instance, she would ask, why was it wrong to be cross, to tell lies, and so on? It's like just, uh, yeah, it's quite funny, actually. Yeah. We've, all, we've all been there. You've, yeah, you've yeah. got small yeah, children. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, I thought it was quite, some quite sweet story. So obviously, probably what, what I've not touched upon that much, and this is probably because it is more than one podcast all on its own, is his her work in the suffrage movement? I yeah. mean, she starts relatively early. There's a major speech on suffrage, on what uh, in what was then her husband's constituency, Brighton. He goes on later to become MP for Hackney as early as 1870. But that is very much her lifetime's work, and she plays a long game there. Yeah. It's a long period of time, yeah. and you think it's um, sort of testament to her sort of courage, her optimism, I guess, and commitment. Who out? You know, how many people would sort of um, sort of battle for sort of decades and decades yeah. uh, for for you know a cause like that. Not 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 a lot of people. I mean, I suppose she she's definitely not the only one, but she mm. certainly provides that sort of intellectual and moral leadership uh, well, and for she that kind movement. of knew, didn't she? That sort of you, you had to go, you had to do all the boring stuff. Helen Lewis kind of talks about this in her book Difficult Women. Mm. while all the kind of shouty stuff was going on, which she always defended, which I always found quite fascinating within that book. Mm. You know, she was like behind us tweaking, just making sure you're 
getting a conservative on board, getting a liberal on board, and then the yeah. Labour Party forming, you get them on board, and yeah. you're slowly pushing, and then you get upset that someone's voted against you and talked to you. Yeah. So what you do, you go out again and get yeah. even more support, and eventually the tighter. Mm. And you know, she knew she had to kind of pull the strings, and yeah. was very. It's, it's, it's again reading it. It's, it's such so. Yeah. beautifully political the way that she eventually does get that change and yeah. accepts also that sometimes change only happens in small steps so there's yeah. a sort of a criticism isn't there in the end it's yeah. like oh well you're only asking for you know um for the vote for women who've got property or whatever yeah. and yeah, yeah you know that kind of stuff and uh, but she was like it we've made progress mm-hmm. and now it's going to be you know that first step is the most important step now let's yeah. move on you know and that's kind of what was really interesting there yeah I mean she's sort of what I found interesting as well in some ways she's both an establishment figure Mm. but challenging the establishment yeah because for example she's part of a group which goes to look at the conditions of concentration camps during the Boer War you know and you think that would be the kind of like oh that's um, wheel out dame so and so to do that in this country she was like the Sue Gray of the day yeah because they thought she, no, because they did. They thought she might do a bit of a whitewash. Yeah, and she, no, and she, she came did. back yeah, and went. So, no, yeah. you know these conditions are awful. You yeah, need and these out. things need to change and yeah. so on. Um, so she is both, as I said, like a, a figure within the establishment, yeah. but also sort but, of challenging but, the but also just incredibly sort of supportive of women. I felt kind of you know in general in terms of have you got the the comment where the blokes the where someone has a go at the suff- suffra- suffragettes yeah. for the for kind of being violent or whatever. Yeah. And he shouts across at the dinner party, oh, because they've done that, I'm going to stop supporting them. Yeah. And then she shouts back, tell us what you've done so far then. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> you're not going to do anymore. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. he, he stays silent. Yeah. You know, he's got nothing to say. Yeah. And, you know, she wasn't obviously... F- sort of for that no she wasn't but, but at she the was, same time she yeah. understood the yeah. frustration and why they would do that and again she, she was very yeah. measured actually yeah. and very sort of collegiate almost. yeah exactly that's um, the thing she sort yeah. of almost made a an ethical choice um um that you know when the, the sort of what would become you know loosely characterized as the suffragettes um, the more sort of militant group within the suffrage movement, once they sort of started to engage in sort of violence, and uh, you know, she said, "Right, I can't, I can't really go with that." But she's still very respectful of them. Um, I think the other issue she had with the suffragette movement was, ironically, how it was run. She felt it was just almost like a little mini despotism. It was just run by a small clique of people, yeah. and she didn't like almost the undemocratic nature of the movement but she's very balanced about it and says well look you know whatever violence they did was far far outweighed than the, by the violence done to them yeah, uh, yeah and she's much read, keener to sort that. of draw attention to that and sort of criticize mm-hmm. sort of anything that she probably did disagree with in terms of the activities of um, yeah I mean, it's really difficult isn't it because you look now obviously the vote for women was one you know which direction or sort of which group was most responsible for that. Or, you know, maybe it was both, you know, yeah, yeah. maybe. And I'm yeah. not sure she would disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Even if she disagreed with them, she definitely respected a lot of the people sort of in the more sort of militant wing of the suffrage movement. Um, 
And she's quite reflective as well. I mean, she talks about sort of how almost the war, you know, in in her view, um, well, there's two. She thinks there's two things that happened during the war, which almost she said made you know suffrage for women certain. And one was the sort of the contribution of yeah. women to the war effort, and obviously they suspended a lot of their sort of political activity during World War One. And the other one was it became obvious that the franchise law, which disenfranchised all the soldiers, yeah. was going to have to be re- yeah, exactly. uh, reformed anyway. Yeah. And it was going to be quite tricky to sort of give it to the soldiers and yeah. not to the women. And that was quite clever as yeah. well. She kind of, that, that recognising of that. Yeah. And like there was an, a way in there, wasn't it? Yeah, and whether that was cynical or just, you know, a happy accident yeah. of, uh, you know, her ethical choice not to campaign during the war, who, who knows? Yeah. It always makes me laugh at the moment, you know, when... Um, the the um, in Parliament we'll hear Boris Johnson say over there when they're playing politics yeah. you're like mate yeah. this is politics <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. she made it, you know would she be accused of playing politics because well, she tied it in with the the army vote you're like that's your job yeah. you know you're trying to get some change going on of course you're going to use whatever's at your disposal to make your kind of dreams yeah. happen. This is Very a nice. nonsensical comment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So she is later awarded a damehood um, yeah. and she, she dies in 1929 but leaves behind an incredible legacy. Um, I suppose the obvious one is that women received the vote in 1918, initially for over 30s, and then there's full equality with men by 1928, which she would have just lived to see, you know, mm. which is incredible. It's something almost quite sort of neat about that but then when you think about how long she campaigned for that you know yeah. the best part of 60 years you know yeah, it's incredible know, yeah. it you know incredible. i mean in some ways it does make you think although probably we don't have the benefit of uh, the time to do this you think oh when are we going to get climate change you know or, you know sorry genuine action on climate change but i'm not sure we can have that same long game that was played here yeah, uh, yeah. but you know you look at well, there have been people who have been fighting. Yeah, no, yeah, for, for yeah, a long period yeah, of time. Yeah, very long period, yeah. 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 So there yeah. you go. Um, so I think... I think we should say that she, you know, just to dabble a little bit into the economics, I know we kind of talk about her yeah. economic stuff, but she was at the meeting held at the UCL in 1819, yeah. which founded the British Economic Association, which is the, was the forerunner of the Royal Economic Society. Yeah. Here we are. So there you go. So there was yeah. 64, five of them are named in the report. Proceedings published in the first issue of the Economic Journal, which she wrote for quite yeah. a bit, didn't she? Yeah. And uh, 10 or 11 of those uh, were women. And she was one of them. Yeah. Okay. Alongside people like Mary Paley, she was there as well, I think. I suppose the other thing we should mention, of course, uh, I mentioned in passing that she's the, one of the driving forces in the establishment of Newnham College, you know, which yes. allows women to have yes. sort of a seat at the top yeah. sort of table of education. Yeah, uh, one of the founders alongside, you said, the philosopher Henry Sidgwick. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of key ideas, I think we struggled a little bit and certainly I was a bit, you know, what, how are we going to bring sort of economics into yeah. this podcast? Because although she popularised economics, what are her original ideas? Because, you know, what we've tended to do with previous podcasts is sort of pick some sort of key idea within the field and 
explain you know the idea and you know how someone came up with it if you like um there is a term associated with her but when you've dug a little bit deeper yeah you know the crowding hypothesis yes is probably not really related not really to related to her, but you might want to explain it anyway yeah well this is the thing is that um there's all this kind of stuff obviously related to equal work for equal pay and she was trying to kind of explain why uh women had lower wages uh, than men and it was just literally to do with the kind of opportunities uh that that they had really um you know and so what happened is that because they were kind of barred entry into so many jobs it meant that uh, classic supply issue uh, where the women could do jobs, yeah. there was an oversupply, yeah. and obviously that forced down wages. Yeah. And um, where um, you had maybe the next best alternative yeah. for the women yeah. was, again, so few and far between, yeah. you could then pay them even less because yeah. the choice was very minimal. Yeah. Whilst men, on the other hand, you had to pay them uh, a lot more because the choices for them were much wider. Yeah. And so therefore to keep them in the job. And so that kind of explained uh, the difference. So the wage differential. Yeah. So, and and so therefore this is where kind of us, you can argue that she can't, but this is the thing about you saying about being um, collegiate. Is that what you said? I think for, you know, that's what she did. She said, look, here is an issue, you know, that we're looking at here you know, what can be done about it. And what we need is for people to have the opportunity Mm. to be able to literally go into any job. She was a free market, you know, you saw the the thing about John Stuart Mill and her supporting that. Mm. And, um, you know, she believed that, you know, if the market dictated that men should get paid more because of, skills experience yeah, or whatever yeah. then so be it yeah but at least give everyone the opportunity yeah. to compete and the same with women if women yeah. prove to be better or whatever yeah. then yes. give them the higher pay yeah. but a complete free market yeah. in terms of her approach to things That's all you call it liberal you know that liberalism yes it? Yeah. and she said that i mean she goes one of her quotes here i'm a liberal because liberalism seems to mean faith in the people confidence that they will manage their own affairs far better than those affairs are likely to be managed by yeah. others so she was a real liberal but but what get the, the the point I probably want to make related to that is this issue that in order to get opportunity, they had to be allowed for women to be educated. Yeah, you yeah. know, and so that's why she fought so hard. Not not only obviously for the vote, but we're going to get onto that as well as well. Yeah. Okay, but for education, like this thing about setting up or being part of someone who sets up new room hall and and understanding that you're barred from professions because you don't have degrees. Well, hold up a second. We're not allowed to get degrees. So, you know, this is ridiculous. So if we can open up that. And I think that's a really, really important point because it is another quote from her, which I think is really, really important from a kind of a feminist, a kind of economic theory point of view. She says, however benevolent, benevolent men may be in their intentions, they cannot know what women want and what, uh, suits the necessities of women's lives as well as women know these things themselves. Well, that's a very sort of um, Hayekian argument, isn't it? Because it's like, well, well, so, well, you could almost interpret that like, well, like the government from a Hayek's point of view doesn't know what you want any better than you. 
yeah. it's only the individual. So there is a kind of sort of economic liberalism underpinning. Yeah, and, and fact, in fact, in a lot of the quotes where they find um, from Fawcett, you actually see that it says page da, 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 from Hayek. Hayek's yeah, the person who's yeah. kind of done the, the history making kind of related to it. And, and um, you know, this is the thing is that when you kind of go back and you see her support and you see her supporting, um, there's another, I mean, this is obviously not, well, it's, it, it sort of is economics because... Um, she supports uh, Josephine Butler, who is this kind of. I think she writes a biography of Josephine Butler. Oh, she does. Yeah, I think. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah think she does. Yeah. Was... Who is a social campaigner, and her famous thing is um, her kind of uh, campaigning for the Contagious Diseases Act, which is this thing where um, prostitution um, that the police could just basically search the women, you know. Mm. For, I think syphilis or whatever it was, yeah. you know, for the disease or whatever, and lock them up or whatever and yeah. do whatever they wanted, basically, with them. While the men who walked away scot-free. Yeah. And it was this kind of thing about in a transaction, yeah. it's a two-way kind of process. Yeah. So how come what's going on there? And so she fought strongly against that, um, you know, and then it was repealed. And again, Fawcett was a, a big supporter of, of that kind of happening. And again, you kept... So then for me, I then think, well, hold up a second. How, again, how do we not know about these people? Mm. And when it says about um, men in economics, you know, they're kind of, the way economics is written is they're interested in what they are interested in. It's like it today, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Like they talk about at the moment, the, the, when you get more women into doing economics at degree level, mm-hmm. what are they more likely areas of study? Yeah. And it's to do with uh, health, development, uh, development economics, yeah. yeah, education and stuff like that. And so what, and, and in fact, if you go back and mm-hmm. find out what the women were doing, so yeah. people like um, Clara Collette, okay, who is another kind of famous person, who, you know, from, from the early, like, late 19th century or whatever. That's right. Okay. She worked on this, what, the Charles Booth survey, Life and Labour of the People of London. Colette authored secondary, secondary education, girls, West End tailoring women, women's work and report on mm-hmm. the money wages of indoors domestic servants. You know, she was basically interested in women's work, yeah. which obviously yeah, blokes yeah, weren't. Yeah, yeah. You, know? <laughs> so, you know, and, and, yeah. and you see this again, Beatrice Webb doing all this kind of stuff for, for a fairer society, going out to find out what was happening yeah. with regards to women's labour. Which mm. you know typically wasn't being looked at, yeah. and so you're missing this whole area of society economics, which yeah. is the criticism of orthodox economics, isn't yeah. it? You know, so um, one of the people just uh, again when you're kind of rooting around um, feminist economic kind of theory, the person you come across a lot on is Michelle Pujol. Okay, so just quickly uh, to say here about uh, this is the, the definition say, of feminist economic theory. It says, feminist economics argues that traditional economics thought was historically ignored gender issues by disregarding or underestimating women's lives and work. Mainstream economics also places humans outside and above nature, seeing it as a free resource that could be exploited without restrictions. So it says, feminist economists economists say that mainstream economics has been disproportionately developed by European-descended heterosexual middle and upper middle-class men, and this has led to the suppression of the life experiences of the full diversity of the world's people, especially women, children, and those in non-traditional families. And obviously, we're doing this podcast, yeah. and you know, we struggle in many respects to find famous female yeah, economists. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is the class. And who are they? They're 
pretty much all European descended heterosexual, yeah. you know. And so this is the thing. So again, uh, female how, economists, how are we? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Feminist economists claim that the historical basis of economics are inherently exclusionary to women. M Michelle Pujol points to five specific historical assumptions about women that arose, which became embedded in the formulation of economics and continue to be used to maintain that women are different from the masculinized norms and exclude them. These ideas include all women are married, or if not yet, they will be and all women will have children. All women are economically dependent on a male relative. All women and sh and should be housewives due to their reproductive cap capacities. Women are unproductive in the industrial workforce. Women are irrational, unfit economic agents, cannot be trusted to make the right economic decisions. Mm. And, 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 and in many respects, I think we kind of again talked about this with regards to COVID. Mm. There was an expectancy, wasn't it? COVID hits, kids are at home. Yeah. And you can see this massive impact on females yeah, yeah. and who's supposed to be looking after and, and, and all mm. that. And we see it again in, in uh, the gender wage gap today. And mm. again, even though obviously the gap's closing, it's not mm. closing at a very fast rate. And for me, this is why I think, um, and I'm probably reading into a bit too much, why the vote was really, really important for feminist economics. Mm. Because once you get... Uh, uh, women voting mm. suddenly you've got to create economic theory that responds to people who are going to vote for you yeah and, <laughs> for the, for, and obviously up until that point you could ignore absolutely everything yeah. that women want because they're not franchised they're not going, are they yeah. and yeah. so to get some to get the vote and then to get females in parliament and then you start seeing policy and economic thinking that, that actually starts linking into their lives. Yeah. And, it, and it is, it's incredible. And um, we get onto books at, um, at some point, um, you know, obviously later, but this is a very, very hidden area of economic history that needs to kind of be, well, not kind of be, much better. No, I'll give you another example. Yeah, and it's, well, it's, it, it's true because even when we look at, some really good books which summarise in quite an accessible manner um, you know the history of economics we've yeah. referred to quite a few really good books I'm not going to slag them off in any way and whether it's just as a result of how the profession's been but the coverage of sort of broader sort of perspectives such as those of female economists is really limited yeah you know it's really yeah. limited well no I was reading and I, I'm not going to name the authors because I feel like I'm criticising yeah. them and they're not they're really good sort of writers and they're really good books but um, but well I'm going to mention a book now which yeah. and this, again it's not saying because I really love this but The yeah. Classical School where um, where um, I think Callum Williams I think his name where he talks about John Stuart Mill and he's saying about how um, uh, Harriet Taylor is involved in the writing of John mm. you know of a lot of and you can't sometimes differentiate their work. Yeah, like okay. Marshall and Mary Palin. Yeah, and, and, but, but there's a quote here. The following is the example from his autobiography. This is from Mills Bogby. Completed after Harriet's death and published only after his own. It says here, when two persons have their thoughts and speculations completely in common, when all subjects in intellectual or moral interest are discussed between them in daily life, when they set out from the same principles and arrive at their conclusions by processes pursued jointly, it is of little consequence which of them holds the pen? The one who contributes least to the composition may contribute most to the thought. The writings which result are the joint product of both, and it must often be impossible to disentangle their respective parts and affirm that this belongs to one and that to the other. 
in this wide sense, not only during the years of our married life, but during many of the years of confidential friendship we preceded, all my published writings were as much her works as mine. The most valuable ideas and features in those joint productions were emanations from her mind. During the greater part of my literary life, I have performed the office in relation to her of an interpreter of original thinkers and meditator mm. between them and the public. Yeah. You know, that's... and and. You don't really hear anything no, about Harriet Taylor Mill. No, you, you know, don't. And that's the thing is he's basically saying... Yeah, it's her as much. It's us. And, and, it's us. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and in fact, yeah. in this, this superb article, which again is written by Michelle Pujol with Janet Sears, she talks about how in actual fact Harriet Taylor was the more radical thinker mm. in terms of what she was kind of pushing. So uh, it's really interesting. Can I just... Uh, 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 are you going to say any... Oh, can I... Say one more thing about you this. Can say, oh, right, okay. You can say many more things. Oh, I, because I've started sort of talking about this in the classroom a little bit more. Because, you know, students always say, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. reading about feminist economics. And it is interesting because I've kind of say to them now, because I read this somewhere, about what are the things that we really focus in on, okay, in terms of Homer economicus, you know, economic man, mm. you know. And we talk about uh, self-interest. Mm-hmm. Um, competition and you know the issue around economics is scarcity mm-hmm. you know and so that is like you know economic man and again what does feminist kind of economic theory that does it challenges that and says well hold up a second competition versus collaboration yeah. self-interest against altruism Mm. scarcity versus abundance mm. you know and what that that shift does mm is huge because we're all talking now about um, scarce resources, unlimited ones, classic economic problem mm. stuff, right? Food's not scarce. Mm. And yet we've got loads of people dying of starvation. Yeah. So we've actually got an abundance of food, right? But no one kind of wants to talk about that no. because then you've got to have a complicated discussion about why some people yeah. in this, this country, for example, are at food banks yeah. Yeah, or in the developing world are not getting any food at all, yeah. you know? Um, why aren't we collaborating more? Why are we in competition for, for these resources? Where is the altruism? We kind of see that more in terms it's of not, the yeah. expectation of women being in the household and the, 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 the non-valuing of it, the non-valuing just, of looking after people. It's not just as well, like, the, the emphasis on things like, so, or com- just to pick up on your idea about competition, because it is, you know, it's all about competition, competition, self-interest and economics. But within any organisation, within the organisation at least, any successful organisation has to be characterised by collaboration. Yeah. So you kind of think this emphasis in human nature on the competitive nature of humans, but actually to do anything successfully, we have to collaborate. Yeah. And you do wonder, because even when we looked at Eleanor Ostrom, and I'm not sort of going to pigeonhole her just as a, because she's a female economist, but you do wonder whether, as a woman, she brings just you know, this different... So, you know, we don't have to... So compete for a scarce resource. We can work out a way in which we can yeah. manage it between yeah. us. And you wonder whether, uh, and this may be obvious, if you had more sort of people within the profession who were just women bringing a different perspective, or you know, people from a more varied backgrounds, whether you would get those sort of radically different perspectives. Mm. And they're not <laughs> Ostrom. She's it's sort of subtly radical, isn't it? You think, well, that's quite obvious, isn't it? But it's not obvious to your average economist yeah. who just focuses in these very sort of mathematical models which have as their assumptions yeah. each sort of atomized 
economic agent is competing with one another. And it's just not how people operate a lot of the time. No, and, it, and it's really this idea Even in that any we've... family, any family is a, is a collaborative unit. No, and... We're not all competing with yeah. each other for breakfast. Exactly. Like, I'm not sort of arm lashing my wife for the Rice Krispies every morning. You know, it's there's a lot of, you know, sort of collaboration <laughs> sort well, yeah, of within we, our household. Yeah, we, we've missed out yeah. so much discussion that could have been happening over all these years mm. and and it's we don't want to pigeonhole people and say oh you know women aren't competitive or no, kind of stuff no like and this. that's that's this why i was slightly reluctant to make the point yeah. in that you know if you're not in danger it's just sort of limiting women to yeah sort of being sort of oh economists who talk about collaboration yes. you think, well maybe they want to talk about competition yeah, exactly. or you know it's like but you do think you know there is sort of uh you know, just absent voices from yeah. sort of discussions about what are enormously important issues. But that that's why, I, and, and we will get onto this, there are some very exciting books mm. soon to come out, Pete. Good. But we'll get onto that when we recommend some books. Brilliant. Okay, so I think we're done. Oh, uh, no, sorry, we should oh, sorry. say. Yeah, okay. Sorry, one last thing. World War One was really, really, really important when it came to equal pay for equal work because there was a brilliant thing. She writes in the Economic Journal where it says um, about how um, uh, I may I quote Sir William Beardmore, the well-known engineer and president in 1916 of Iron and Steel Institute. In his presidential address, he spoke of the difficulty met with by employers in, in inducing workmen to utilise to the best advantage improved methods of manufacture evolved by experimental uh, research. He said, early in the war, it was found at Parkhead Forge that the output from the respective machines was not so great as what the machines were designed for. And one of the workers uh, was induced to do his best to obtain the most out of the machine. He very greatly increased his output, notwithstanding his predilection for trade union restrictions. When it's found that the demands of the government for a greatly accelerated production of shells required the employment of girls in the projectile factory, owing to the scarcity of skilled workers, these girls, in all cases, produced more than double that by thoroughly trained mechanics, mm. right? Uh, members of trade unions working the same machines under the same conditions. In the turning of the shell uh, body, the actual output by girls with the same machines and working under the same conditions and for an equal number of hours was quite double that by trained mechanics. In the boring of shells, the output also was quite double. And in the curving, waving and finishing of shell cases, quite 120% more than that of experienced mechanics. Wow. It's incredible because what you've been, they, they were feeding a lie all this time. Yeah. You know, oh, women can't do this, women can't do this, women can't do this. Oh, we need women out. Blimey, they're really good. <laughs> they are really good. Yeah. Shock, shock, horror. Yeah. You know, and there was a, the, she also starts at the beginning of that where um, someone, I think um, John Jones, who is a, an outfit or whatever he ends up getting ill and his wife ends up doing it or something like that and then they find out it was her even though the, the skill like the quality yeah. is the same yeah. because they find out it was a woman they start paying her less <laughs> like the whole yeah. thing is it's incredible anyway but that what I'm saying is that World War One changed yeah, yeah. The, the attitude you know? yeah. of like yeah. and, and trade unions sort of made a kind of a rod for their own back in many respects because uh, this is I've been thinking about this point quite a bit, and I don't know whether you'll agree with me, but traditionally, as more and more women have come into the labour market, hmm. you've seen trade union rates drop, right? And that has led to greater inequality. We talked about an inequality special. And I just wonder if the historical um, kind of attitude towards women 
within the workplace mm. that trade unions have shown has actually still got a legacy where women don't want to join trade unions. And Possibly. that is part of the problem. Possibly. Well, you're saying the sort of very patriarchal institutions yes. the sort of trade union itself. I think, yeah, I mean, that's a, probably a whole podcast in itself, isn't it, to discuss the the trade union movement. I mean, there's other, you know, obviously Thatcher's sort of no, anti-union laws. And, I agree with that. Uh, but what I'm saying is if you read any of the history, you know, like obviously the trade unions are doing their job of protecting their workers, mm. but they're so anti- Well, yeah, I suppose their know. existing workers are male. Yes. You know, but there are, you know, again, the trade union movement for me has done wonderful things in yeah. our sort of, if you took a, a broad sort of long perspective. But there's probably been elements of trade union movements at times that have been racist. You yeah. know, they've sort of wanted, not wanted to sort of have cheap sort of immigrant labour, yeah. uh, sort of undercut their their members. But you know, I'm not gonna get into some yes. sort of attacks yeah. on trade unions. Too. I always do this with kids because obviously, when you teach sort of conventional sort of A level economics, it's always like, oh yeah, we can trade unions supply side policy. Yeah, and I'm just like, hang on a minute, <laughs> let's think about some of the things that would still be in place if not for trade yeah, unions, yeah. you know, right. like you'd be like little kids going in sort of weaving, <laughs> going in and out of sort yeah. of machinery, getting your hands sort of cut I'll off. And what, some kids would probably do with it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Are we moving on? We're moving on. Irrelevance is still today because again, Obviously, we should mention the fact. Obviously, there's the full set society. Yeah, we didn't mention. Did we mention? We didn't that? mention the full set society as part of our legacy. We did not. Yeah, yeah. and obvi- and you look at their campaigns. Still about equal. You yeah. know, we, there is still so much progress yeah. to be made. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what? Oh, what did the critics say about her and her ideas? Well, I suppose because of what we said about sort of economics, it's um, you know there aren't sort of huge number of original economic ideas we can critique. I think in terms of her role in the suffrage movement, there's this, oh, was she radical? Was she not radical enough? She, but ultimately, for me, she got the job done. I suppose, generally speaking, and this is more sort of from sort of teaching sociology, you could argue that her, both as a sort of an economic liberal um, and this sort of fight for women's suffrage, to what degree... Um, did she fight for or, or were the outcomes sort of beneficial to working class women yes. yeah. and maybe people from sort of different ethnic backgrounds? That's always a criticism of the sort of the women's sort of mainstream women's liberation movement. You know, it ignores the experience of sort of working class women or yeah. uh, women of colour, you know. Yeah. So, but, you know. I, I, would, and I, I, would, I was I mean, going to say it, the same, exactly yeah. the same thing in terms of that, that there is obviously a class issue here. You know, um, but again, when you read around her and who she was sort of supporting and things like that, yeah. you kind of think that maybe that's not true. I'd say where she might be criticised, though, is from a from a, a very radical, probably left maybe point of view, is that say for someone like Rosa Luxemburg or whatever, mm. she, they were all anti the war. Yeah. And she was very pro World War One, wasn't she? And very yeah. supportive behind it in terms yeah, of, yeah. you know, while there was obviously quite a lot of socialist thinkers, particularly females, yeah. who were basically saying, look, why are the workers fighting against each other here? We yeah. need to keep on ma- making this kind of aware. But, you know, they would have been critical of her of just saying, no, we're going to allow the government to yeah. wages. We're not going to, you know, like you said about they stopped the campaign and, 
and they kind of helped the war effort and put the yeah, resources was, into that. She was patriotic, I think, yeah. quite a traditional sort of, exactly. sort of and, sense and, of that and, word. And obviously, yeah. maybe, I think what you're driving at is that if you're kind of an international socialist in that same era, yeah. you would point to the fact that certainly World War I, uh, you could say, oh, this is just some expression of sort of competing elements of the capitalist hegemony or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Right? And... and, and like I say, Rosa Luxemburg was a kind of a, a key person in that. I came across a, another fascinating lady called Flora Tristan, who is someone, again, who kind of fought for that. He's got a great quote, which is, the woman is the proletarian of the proletariat. Mm. You know. Anyway, so that was a kind of another thing that I would yeah. probably pick up on. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Um, food time. Uh, what are we eating today, Pete, that has a spurious link with Forset? Well... I mean, I've let you down here. Yeah. I've let you down. I've not actually cooked anything. It's been a busy week at work. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the suffragist cookbook. Okay, excellent. <laughs> so I found this really interesting sort of national public radio website from the US. And there's an article about how suffragists use cookbooks as a recipe for subversion. Oh, right. Okay. So this is sort of more in America, but um, right. there's a <laughs> really funny uh, article uh, I'd recommend it. We must put out a link to it by someone called Nina Martyris. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a cookbook that came from Pittsburgh in 1915. And it's uh, the suffrage cookbook. It's got lots of recipes in it, celebrity endorsements, photographs and saucy jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so within that, there's a, a pie for a suffragist stouting husband. And the ingredients include one quart milk humour kindness, Eight reasons, including war, white slavery, child labour, eight million working women, bad roads and poisonous water. And then it goes on, it says, mix the the trust with tact and velvet gloves using no sarcasm, especially with the upper crust. (laughs) Upper crusts must be handled with extreme care, for they quickly sour if manipulated roughly. (laughs) So I can understand why you couldn't make that piece. Yes, yeah, that's my sort of get out of jail free card. Very good. But I thought that was really interesting. And I I guess... Again, going back to sort of politics in its broader sense, I think what's interesting about that is you kind of think if Millicent Fawcett was around today, sort of the role she would use, yeah, you know, in terms of social media and so on. I think she would be kind of things very, like very cookbooks. Clever. It's quite sort of clever, isn't it? You yeah. know, you're thinking this is sort of an acceptable way. You know, women are allowed to buy cookbooks of sort of insidiously, sort yeah. of in a good way, insidiously, well, sort like- of promoting the suffrage movement among sort of housewives who might say, "Oh, I bought this cookbook," yeah. and then. You know, it's almost allowed to buy a cookbook. And Do you know what that reminds me of? Is the bit in Freakonomics yeah. where, um, you know, where they hide in, they're undermining the um, the Ku Klux Klan movement by putting in code words in Superman comics. Yes. Do you remember yeah, yeah, something yeah, like that, isn't yeah, it? So you're yeah. trying to get a hidden message out, yeah. you know. And also, it, isn't, there's, I remember reading, I think, in a book about Don't Touch My Hair, about in using the use of afro hair again to get messages out or something like that in terms of that there's a kind of there's a link there as well to afro hair which is again secret ways of getting Mm. messages to people is is there's a real fascinating history there yeah good good find thank you thank you but obviously our listeners will be really disappointed that i'm not chomping into the mic yeah now i haven't let you down pete because it's still quiz time okay so we'll just start Pause for a moment.
I'm back in the room. Just took the opportunity to refuel. Okay, um, now, uh, as you are aware, Pete, yeah? uh, there is um, a statue now of Millicent Fawcett, which I don't think we talked about. No, we didn't. In, I've seen it. It's, it's very in, impressive. In, in Parliament Square. So the questions are sort of around that. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. Quiz time. Multiple choice. Oh, good. Okay. Question one. Who is the closest neighbour of Fawcett in Parliament Square? Is it Mandela, Gandhi or Churchill? I don't think it's Churchill. Uh, I can picture the Gandhi statue. I'm going to say Gandhi. He's Gandhi. Yes. Okay. Next one. Okay. Now, um, we've read uh, Caroline Criado Perez's book. Yeah. Oh, have you read it? Invisible Women? No. I've read it and I recommended it in yeah, a, did, some yeah. book. Anyway, brilliant book. She was the person who fought for a woman to appear on a banknote and the £10 duly got changed in 2017 when Jane Austen appeared. Mm. But who did she replace? Was it Darwin, Dickens or Turner? Hmm. Have they all appeared on both I want to say Darwin. Correct! Oh, ho, ho, ho. Two from two. Yeah. There are 55 women on the Fawcett plinth really? who supported women's suffrage. Yeah. How many men are on there? Two, four, or six? Two, four, or six. That's a bit rubbish, isn't it? Uh, four. Correct. Oh, great. I'm just going for the middle one. <laughs> Always correct. Uh, what percentage of statues in the UK were of individual women, not including the royal family, in 2016, according to research by Caroline Criado Perez? Was it 2.7%, 4.3%, or 6.8%? Oh my word! Four in four. Okay. This is an astonishing performance. I know. This is amazing. Which young British artist or YBA, yeah. as they were known, what are, created the sculpture for Millicent Fawcett? Mm. Was it wait Rachel Whiteread, Sarah Lucas, or Gillian Waring? Can you read them again. Rachel Rachel Whiteread, Sarah Lucas, or Gillian Waring? I don't think it's Sarah Lucas. I want to say Gillian Waring. Correct! Oh! Is that five out of five? It is, but we've got two more. Oh, okay. I added these two, oh. so I hope it doesn't spoil it for you. I think you'll oh. get the next one. Oh. Who was the first female MP in the House of Commons? Nancy Aston. Didn't even need that. Oh, sorry. Uh, I didn't Nancy Aston, Diane yeah. Abbott or Jeanette Rankin. Yeah, uh, Nancy Aston. Yeah. I included Diane Abbott because obviously the first female black MP. It was actually. And sorry, Jeanette Rankin was the first American MP. Uh, there was an MP who didn't take up a seat. I'm seeing an Irish MP, a female Irish MP. There you go. Right. Well, look, last question. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. You've done superbly. Yeah. Which country, according to Wikipedia, had the first females elected to their parliament? Big moment. Austria. Finland or the Netherlands? Oh, well, I was thinking there wasn't on there. I thought it was New Zealand. Read them again. 
Austria, Finland, or, or the Netherlands. I might have missed New Zealand, but when Austria, I was scrolling down, Finland, these were the three that I uh, chose. Just can't imagine it's Austria. Uh, Finland or the Netherlands. Netherlands, maybe too obvious. Finland. It's the right answer! Oh! Seven oh. out of seven. Well, well beat that, readers. Well, yeah. <laughs> listeners, listeners, listeners. Listeners. Sorry. Okay. So there you go. Right. Well, well done, Pete. Oh, yeah. Um, bask in that glory all week. That's you my you can do, yeah. yeah. Um, everyone is always interested who the next Bond is going to be. And we thought it might be fun to think about whether our economist would make a good Bond. What do you think, Pete? He'd make a great Bond. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, uh, did you watch the last Bond film? Mm, yep. There's some new 007 within yeah. it, the Lashana Lynch character. Yes. Though actually, I think if you look at characters within Bond, I could see a more of an M. You know, she's quite an establishment figure. Yes. Quite sort of... Yeah, I think that's a know. very good pick, like yeah. Judy so Dench. So the Judy Dench character. I'd assume she spoke quite a few languages, because she learned, didn't she, when she went to, uh, to Boer War, she learned, didn't she, Afrikaans, I think, when she yeah. was travelling over, and all this kind of stuff. So it's, you kind of think she could have... Yeah. Easily slipped into. You'd imagine anyone of that sort of level of society, just assume they all speak French. Yeah. Might be wrong. Yeah. I can imagine her getting out her universal export card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, should we say Judy? Uh, Let's go M. 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 Yeah. Okay. Uh, what books would you recommend if people wanted to learn more about Fawcett and her ideas? Right. So, I think. The obvious one is is her biography, which we I did find a free link to. Yes, so I know so that you, you can paid, send me that. You paid for it on yeah, Amazon. You must be gutted yeah. now. So I know you're quite a frugal chap. <laughs> no, no, no. But I found yeah. a, a free PDF. I'm annoyed that you told me that. Uh, and so I will forward that. So yeah, uh, uh, which is called What I Remember. Yes, is What that right? I Remember. And it's a really good read, even if you're not that interested in economics. It's just a fascinating read about a really sort of interesting, optimistic. Uh, resilient woman. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's all right. What are you going um, to suggest? Well, uh, well, I've got, like I said... Yeah, you, some... you touched upon some really interesting yeah. sort of um, books. Now, there you? is uh, a book coming out called A Her Story of Economics. You see, you see this kind of referencing quite a lot about a history of economics. And, you know, true to the name. You know. Yeah. So, um, and Edith, I hope I'm going to say her right name right, Cooper or Quipper? It's K-U-I-P-E-R. I never know how to pronounce it. I've seen yeah. that elsewhere. I'm not yeah. know how to pronounce her it. story of economics. So Kuiper? it's coming out soon. Mm. I don't think it's out yet. Okay. Mm. But she was really nice because I emailed her or yeah. messaged her. This is the beauty of Twitter, you know, is that you can kind of yeah. chat to these people. And I did say, look, could you help us out here? You know, do you know if there's any kind of originals or whatever? Mm. And she was saying, look, there's a lot during that area. Check out mm. the Fabian Women's Group. Um, more interesting women economists. There's a group of econo economic historians at LSE that do great work in Chicago. A group of women were doing research on consumption behavior, home economics. Beatrice Webb and Clara Collette conduct empiri mm. uh, empirical research. So my book, A History of Economics, will come out end of this May and provides a thorough overview of lots of women's economics works, including Clara Collette and many, many others. I'd really look forward to that, and, actually. Yeah, that sounds I'm really, really interesting. Project, and a, good, also, a she, good gift for others as well. Yeah, and she recommends another book as well. Okay, so a book that is coming out in June by Anne-Marie May, mm. which I wrote down the full title here, was Gender and the Dismal Science, Women in the Early Years of the Economic Profession. Mm. Um, and again, 
I looked up on JSTOR and Marie May, and you can find some of her articles, and, and again, they are really interesting. So I think that book is going to be brilliant. Great. I think we've already mentioned this previously before. Um, no, I said it early on. Helen Lewis, Difficult Women. Yeah. It, you know, I think it's 11 stories or whatever. Yeah. And her story about voting, but also education. Yeah. They're really interesting. They're a fantastic yeah. read, you know, about what they were kind yeah. of up against. Um, the Sex Factor, How Women Made the uh, West Rich by Victoria Bateman kind of feeds into that. Mm -hmm. At the moment, a very kind of key person in terms of fighting for gender equality and, yeah. and those kind of things like that. And um, I was saying about obviously class and gender. Funny enough, uh, in reading for this uh, um, podcast, I joined the Left Book Club. Right, which is originally kind of George Orwell's kind mm. of thing, George Orwell. And the first book I got was Bread and Roses, Gender and Class Under Capitalism by a Andrea de Dartry. Mm. Right. And that is where I learned about uh, Flora Tristan, uh, Josephine Butler was one of them, Alexandra Colonte, mm. who was like, she was this amazing woman in the mm. Russian Revolution who brought in mm. such amazing female policies within mm. that and like probably more progressive than we've got now in yeah. some countries but obviously once the Russian Revolution mm. sort of went and it kind of went backwards a little bit yeah. but it was brilliant I would really 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 recommend that book great but well, there's some great can I just say there's some great um, people to follow online related to these issues there's Alice Evans uh, and Kennedy Smith incredibly helpful people that you can I mean, I found it brilliant on Twitter. Mm. You know, I know lots of people hate Twitter. Plus point to Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. So you can just talk to people mm. and just say, hey, look, can you help me out here? So there you go. If Fawcett was a boxer, what would a walk-on music be and why? I could, there is some references in her biography to music they actually liked. Yes. So she certainly visited, uh, you know, the Wagner yes, I've got sort that. of fest in Bayreuth. Yes. Yeah, I think I've I pronounced that, that correctly. Yeah. Some great Wagner pieces for boxing yes. music. I think I've mentioned we had Wagner Ride of the Valkyries, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. I'm sure we've mentioned that. I think we had that. Who did we have that for? Who did we have that for? I don't know. Sean Yeah, I keep on thinking. It might be Schumacher. No, I don't know. I don't know. She describes as well this quite funny story about her father's brother, who they called Uncle Balls. He took us to a Philharmonic concert um, and he hated music. Uh, she says he cared no more for music than a Mastodon would have done. Uh, how he bore it, I cannot tell, but we enjoyed it hugely. There for the first time we heard Haydn's quartet, the one which introduces the famous hymn to the emperor. From the time of its composition until 1918, the Austrian National Anthem. I don't know. There you go. A bit obscure, but yeah, maybe yeah. You know, Austrian National Anthem. Yeah. There's probably some, you know, obviously there's there's quite a lot of, uh, you know, songs about sort of strong women fighting for yeah. one's rights that you, yeah. you could recommend. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get onto that. But did you, did you come across the um, celebratory event for the women's vote? I did, yeah. Yeah. So you're not going to suggest Jerusalem? I wasn't, but no, go on. <laughs> I mean, Jerusalem is really... But what I found interesting, because it says there that it's... Um, I put here, did you know Jerusalem, the tune, was written at the request of Fawcett? No, I didn't know that. He said, no. It says, oh, um, that's what she remembers. But then when you look up Jerusalem online, there's a suggestion that's not the case. 
Right. So, but that's what she remembers in her autobiography that she asked uh, Hubert Parry, who was a big supporter of the movement, hmm. who eventually assigned the copyright to the NUWSS. I did not okay. know that. And uh, he says it, although, I mean, that does slightly contradict what it says on Wikipedia, but it definitely Jerusalem, because they then played it, and then I think the famous, what it is now, was hmm. then slightly tweaked again. But the original Jerusalem was apparently for the women's movement at the request of Fawcett. Well, I did not know that, and so we should definitely have it. We should definitely have that, but... But, yeah. I just want, I've got three songs of recommendations. Okay. Because there's Beethoven's Leonore Overture number three. Have you heard that? Beethoven's... Le- Leonore Overture number yeah, three? Yeah, okay, yeah, go on. Quite a powerful piece. Yeah, right. That also was played at the party. All right, well, there as it were. Just a few contemporary ones. I don't know yeah. if you've watched the remake of The Equaliser starring Queen Latifah. I have not, no. Which is absolutely amazing. I remember amazing. the original with Edward Woodward. I yeah. used to like watching that late at night. Yeah, I love yeah. that. And Denzel Washington now in the films. But they've moved into a female Equaliser, right. which okay. is Queen Latifah. And uh, Queen Latifah... Was that If You're Lying, I'll Be Back? That was the line in the original one. Or is that... Uh, there is something that like that, isn't there? There is something related to that. Yeah. And, and uh, Queen Latifah, obviously one of the first female rappers, you'd argue. Yeah. And she did a song with Moni Love called Ladies First. Oh, and it is a good. proper tune, Pete. Well, I think that's... I think people should seek it out. And, and Run the World by Beyonce and You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore. Because <laughs> there's a bit in her... Did you see the bit in... Again, going back to her biography, where she gets robbed... She gets robbed by um, something, they capture the person. And then when they take them to court, she says, um, the court says something like, um, right, uh, this bloke basically has robbed this, this and the money, which is clearly owned by, um, is it Henry Fawcett? Yeah, his husband. husband, yeah, Henry. And, and she says, what? You know, the fact that the money couldn't be owned by her, it wasn't her money to be robbed. Yeah, it was, it was his money, right. and she writes in the book about how outraged she is about how basically he doesn't own her, and so I thought you don't own me was a really good one. Oh, good. There you go. Right. Anyway, we'll go for Jerusalem. Yeah, some very good suggestions. Thank, thank you. Well done. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> poetry corner. All right, I'm, I'm ready. You've I'm got ready. your lines, yeah? yeah. I've got my lines. Okay, go so for it. So I'm going to read the two opening lines, and Gav's going to hold yeah. forth. Thank you. Uh, who said courage calls to courage everywhere and now has a statue in Parliament Square? That, my friend, is Millicent Fawcett, better known as a suffragette. But she was an economist as well, you know, with a book for beginners in her portfolio. She was a founding member of the RES and fought for women to make progress in a subject dominated by men like her hubby, that even today is old boy clubby. She wanted labour markets open for all, but trade unions fought against this rule. This meant that women would often stay poor, but opinion changed during the war when women showed what they could do by being more productive. Yeah, it's true. Alas, though, glass ceilings still remain. The patriarchy continues to reign. And what's more, as COVID has shown, women are still expected to be at home. So even though Millicent's statue is there, in many respects, it's just hot air. Hmm. Like a depressing end to it, but yeah, I like that. Yeah. She, she was a huge Shakespeare band by the play, so you can see I wonder if she would have enjoyed that. I think she would have. 
Yeah. I think she would have loved it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, do we like her? Would we have a, a drink beer? Oh, definitely. Wine, I really so. liked her. Just really warm and inspiring, yeah. you know, just genuinely, because you kind of think there's no bitterness, just quite funny. I think she'd be really good company. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's I, a proper I, laugh. How are we spending the day with her, Pete? What shall we do? We could... Um, <sighs> well, not fishing. No. <laughs> <laughs> we could go and see a Shakespeare play yeah, yeah we she could, loved a bit of Shakespeare yeah, or, li- or, or maybe music. maybe she loved Italy that's somewhere I'd quite like to go back to yeah we could go and see an opera in oh, the Verona in the Verona Amphitheatre I bet she'd be, love that that would be lovely yeah. what do you think well what a time we're going to have with her yeah excellent yeah. okay jolly good okay uh, one of our newer questions uh, if we were out with her uh, obviously in Italy what one question would we ask her and why yeah so I'd like to think we're just having a nice meal before the opera yeah and we're having a good old chinwag about matters political and economics I think I would just want to ask her like you know looking at the world around you now we've brought you back you know like uh, early 21st century what work remains what what should you know yeah, what should we focus on question. what should we focus on now yeah or whether she'd be happy with the progress made she yeah. must have probably thought right we're, we're now on it yeah. And now she comes back and there's still 15% gender pay gap. Yeah. Lack of opportunities for women in so many different areas. Or maybe she'd be like, oh, yeah, but you're doing well. You know, yeah. Just keep going. There was a big know. report the other day about, again, a lack of female economists in high teaching posts and stuff like that. Well, she, she might be turning in her grave. The sexism within Parliament. Oh, yeah, all of that again. Yeah, which is a current scandal Absolutely. in the UK. The whole... You think sometimes progress is me. It's like one step forward, we take two steps back. Yeah, where's that from? Paul Abdul. Oh. Um, <laughs> that's not the. Do you know want to know the question? Oh, yeah, go on, go on. What's the question you would ask? What What made me laugh is that um, she met Gary Baldy. Yeah, didn't she and the Pope. Right. Yeah. No, no, but with Gary Baldy, she took photos to yeah. get them to be signed, so they became greater value. Oh. <laughs> she that's says. Funny. She says we took these photos. Uh, that we wanted to increase their value. But when we were with him, we felt that we couldn't ask. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, in hindsight, whether she was slightly gutted about that. <laughs> it's not like us. We remember us asking for Mark Lawrence's okay. <laughs> he wasn't happy, was he? Yeah, and Ray Stubbs. Ray Stubbs was delighted too. What yeah. a gent. Yeah. yeah. What a gent. Have you ever had a photo that you've tried to get someone to sign? Uh, I don't think... I think when I went to a Doctor Who convention when I was about <laughs> eight or nine... I queued up for ages and regretted it. I think I got yeah. someone like some vague 80s assistant to sort of, sort of like Tegan or something yeah. to sign it. Yeah. Maybe this is a nice time to ask our listeners that if yeah. ever they've had an experience a bit like Millicent, where they were so desperate for an autograph, but in the end yeah. they backed out. Yeah. We'd love to hear, you know, from yeah. them. Okay, lovely. So... This is the end of season five, Pete. Yeah. And what, uh, a, what a ride it's been. Hey, it has been, hasn't it? Uh, so what are we doing next? We don't really know, do we? You know, we've got a few ideas. Yeah, it's all up in the air. So if anyone's got any suggestions for Economist, yeah. we've had a suggestion about Phillips, uh, which, you know, looks pretty, pretty Phillips. good. Alban Phillips. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyone that's, you know, got an interesting life, we'd like to... or another female that we'd kind of get into that we can look at yeah. quite good or someone from a different you know race or religion or whatever it might be whatever yeah no but we will look yeah. forward to ideas and formulating 
our next series. There you go. Yeah. So we'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you'll listen to our next podcast. Uh, we'd also like to thank our friend Nick, who always gives us technical advice with regards to podcasting. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Economics in 10 or contact us by email at economicsin10 at gmail.com. We'd love reviews. Yeah, we? yeah, reviews on iTunes or any other sort of platform. We love reviews. We, yeah. are, we are shallow and we like positive reviews. Feel free to read us as well in the Economics Today yeah. and every now and again in the Stortford Independent newspaper. Yeah, and we will, we will, we do actually have a website which Coming. we're going to launch. We've mentioned that in the past, but it is now... <laughs> It does now exist. There yeah? you go. So we just need to tie it up a bit and then we'll be very happy to share it with everyone. Lovely. Yeah. So thanks again for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>